Welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. This is where we explore third-way leadership in a polarized world, and we ask what it means to keep Jesus at the center through it all. We hope you'll find the conversation meaningful and that it equips you in your context with fresh approaches to facing some of the most challenging leadership and ministry questions of our day. And hey, if you're new to Jesus Collective, welcome! We are a relational network of churches and ministry leaders with a vision to unite equip and amplify a movement that is all about Jesus. You can look us up on social media or head to our website at jesuscollective.com to learn more, find out what it means to get involved, all that good stuff. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. I'm Angela and I'm hosting here with my friend John Hand. Hello, nice to see everybody again and those who are new, welcome. We are pausing our practitioner series in order to enjoy this conversation with Mike because it is so stinking timely. Ten years ago, Mike uh, and Alan Hirsch wrote this book together called Read Jesus, Remaking the Church in the Founder's Image. And it was timely then, and it has only just gotten more timely. And you've just done a retool of it that makes it even more uh, pointed to our moment. There is a thing happening in the North American church that is uh, an awakening to some dynamics that none of us wish were there, but are staring us now in the face and calling into question, what is it that we are missing either in our own discipleship, in our understanding of leading, of leadership, or in our church models, our systems, like what is it? And we are so excited to have this conversation with Mike and explore these concepts that re-Jesus points straight to. Yeah. So just a little introduction on Mike. Probably everybody here has some uh, awareness of Mike. I just want to say some appreciation. So Mike, as a, as a veteran uh, church leader, I've over the years really appreciated your writings, you've helped me understand the, the mission of God more vividly. As I, was, I was a church planter. I drew on your work. Uh, it inspired uh, me in different ways. And I'm really, uh, I'm glad for the prophetic voice that you bring. And I encourage you to bring it today to dial that prophetic voice up. You are always um, predictably, unpredictably prophetic. And so we, we invite that and, and let's dive into this, this conversation of, uh, read Jesus. Like why predictably prophetic, man, that's, um, that's a big, big ask <laughs> right straight off the bat there. So. You, you can, you can warm up. You don't have to, you don't have to start right away. You well, can, can warm be predictably up prophetic. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah. <laughs> so t- tell us why you wrote the book. Uh, well, why you wrote it 10 years ago and why you decided 10 years later to refresh? Yeah, well, we wrote it 10 years ago um, because we just saw um, themes and uh, trajectories in our churches which were were leading toward uh, the, the, the whole church thing being about kind of institutional power and calls for kind of personal or religious freedoms and a kind of a swagger, a desire to kind of reclaim, you know, the nation. And I mean, I think that's that's a conversation that's not just in the US or Canada, it's certainly still the case here in Australia as well. And 
Um, and we just found it difficult in the midst of all of that to discover where is the man from Nazareth in all of that? Like what, what does, how do we find Christ in the midst of this? I think in, this, in the book we tell a story about how we, we were both in Rome together and we went to, uh, to St. Peter's. And um, I'll tell you what, it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing. I mean, you walk into this, this opulent and magnificent and utterly stunning building and you're trying to see Christ in the midst of all of that. And in saying this, I'm not wanting to kind of be overly critical about kind of church architecture or art or liturgy or, or Catholicism, but just to say it, it sometimes it can be so religious, it's hard to actually encounter Christ in the midst of that. And of course, we can think of so many examples in history. Like in the again, in the book, we told the story of how um when the Ku Klux Klan went out and you know, eventually they were to kidnap three white uh, civil rights workers and murder them and bury them uh, in Mississippi. On the night before that happened, so on the night that that happened, uh, the Ku Klux Klan gathered for a worship service and there was a prayer that we put in the book where they're actually, I mean, it's a pretty good prayer, calling on Jesus to kind of empower them and, uh, and, 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 and fill them with a fresh vision for the work to which they were called. And then they went out on a murderous, racist rampage. And you're like, well, wait a second, what's going yeah. on? What well, you can actually pray a good prayer in Jesus' name before you then feel justified to go and do something like that. Um, and so all of this kind of came to us uh, collectively where we've just found ourselves, how is it that so much stuff which is said and done in Jesus' name doesn't seem to be very Jesus-y? And then I think, you know, uh, in recent years, um, I personally was really affected watching the storming of the Capitol building in Washington and, you know, leaving aside, you know, Republican, Democratic uh, conversations or politics to see people again on a violent rampage, terrorizing mm -hmm. workers in the Capitol building. I mean, like literally terrorizing people who thought that they, that their lives were in danger and they may well have been in danger, but then to, for them to pause in the middle of the, 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 the Capitol building a and prayer meeting in Jesus yeah. name. Yeah. And then you see people with what would Jesus do, you know, placards and, and, and lots of Jesus-y T-shirts. And you think, well, wait a second, 10 years later, it's, it's not as bad as the Ku Klux Klan, but for goodness sake, what, what has changed? Like it just feels as though so much which is claiming the name of Jesus is really quite, you know, uh, um, opposed to the, the very things that Jesus said and did. And then more recently still, you know, you've got stories about uh the great Australian church export to the world Hillsong and um, just the opulence and the use of alcohol and the gifts and the wealth and the, just the kind of so many blind spots, all which occur right in the midst of them preaching and singing and proclaiming the name of Jesus. So it's so possible, it seems for us to be sounding like we love Jesus but actually be committed to things that seem so out of step with what he said and, and who he was. Yeah. Yeah. So the even book is basically, come on, let's, let's go back to Jesus. Let's recover who he is, which I know is your vision as well. So it's just like, this isn't just like, let's tweak a few things. Like what did we get kind of wrong here that sent us in this trajectory so far away from much of what Jesus calls us to? Yeah.
So this might be diving like too deep in or staying too shallow. Like you take it where you want to go. But I, the compelling question to me is like, how do we avoid the trap of making Jesus in our image? I mean, I really loved your statement about like, we need to regularly recalibrate the church we, yep. around Jesus, like regularly recalibrate, but maybe pull back from even just the church, maybe come straight at us as disciples. <laughs> maybe we could start there. How do we avoid the trap of making Jesus in our image? Yeah. Republican Jesus, Democrat Jesus, religious Jesus. We're all, we all have a piece of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think we could ever fully free ourselves of that. You know, that's, that's, we, we come at Jesus with a particular perspective. And, and so I don't think we can completely avoid that. But to what degree do we, we take Jesus captive to our own agendas or our own preferences or desires is a really important question. And it seems to me as though all the resources are there for us. There, there is there's the, the Gospels. There is the Holy Spirit-inspired community. Um, there is a commitment. There ought to be a commitment for us to be uh, walking in the way of discipleship, making ourselves accountable to others and to each other, learning from each other. There are plenty of um, historical and fresh resources that we can draw upon for us to be able to um, to do that. I fear that a great deal Ange, of what, what has happened has been that we, we're not evangelizing new disciples. Not many people are coming into churches who have no church background. So we're basically breeding and raising our own yes. Christians. And so people are growing up in the church. And at some point, it almost feels like by osmosis as children, they learn about Jesus and he's the king and he's our savior and he loves us and the like. And for many people raised in the church, I think their point of commitment to Jesus isn't that the scales fell off their eyes and now they see as everything should be with Christ as King and Lord and Saviour and the kingdom unfurling around us and an invitation for us to, to bend our knee and to step into that world and to commit ourselves to him as our King and our Saviour. But rather, often it is all the stuff that's swirling around through your upbringing now seems to hit you emotionally and you feel Ah, he loves me. And you oh, give your yeah. life to Jesus. And we all say hallelujah and everyone gets thrilled. And and some churches, people, you know, who are like five and seven years old do that. And sometimes it's, you know, 17 or, but it's like, yes, you finally got it. Well, what you got was you got the kind of emotional response to Jesus' love. And some churches will even codify this by using phrases like, you know, falling in love with Jesus. Like, you know, what they mean is that's when there was an existential kind of emotional reaction that you felt it was all true, uh, not just that you thought it was all true. Now, my big concern about all that is that you can actually fall in love with Jesus and not really know very much about Jesus. Like you can, you know, know, I always say people, a lot of people know Jesus' greatest hits. They like, they know Christmas, they know, <laughs> you know a, a few miracles and a few parables. It's like, okay, I got it. Um, that's all I need to know. And now I have this kind of deep feeling, which comes from kind of the North American kind of tradition of, of the great awakenings and the like. It's like, if you have this sense of assurance, ah, oh, yes, he loves me. Well, then that's conversion. And, and calling it falling in love with Jesus 
when we fall in love with people as a transition to truly loving and knowing them is dangerous because falling in love with anything or anyone is always temporary. I mean, you know, marriage counsellors and psychologists will say that the real work of loving a spouse happens after the feelings of being in love have abated. And it feels to me as though, yeah, lots of Christians have fallen in love with Jesus, had really deep feelings about him at some some stage, usually in their youth, and that has carried them for a period of time, but eventually they've fallen out of love, and therefore they think, well, it's all over. And I can't help but imagine that a lot of the kind of deconstruction conversation that's going on right now is about people who have who have just moved through the fallen in love with Jesus phase. And in a marriage, you either decide I am going to commit to love this person or we are going to commit to love each other. And the work of love, the beautiful, beautiful work of love begins or you end the relationship. And as as I said, we're seeing lots of people end the relationship because it was effectively just like an emotional response to Christ. So I think this is all in response, Ange, to how do we not make Jesus in our own image? It's like, how do we not make Jesus in our own image? We actually do the work of love. But what's the work Mm. of love? The work of love is being attendant to the person that we're loving, in this case, Christ, learning more about him, studying the scriptures, being accountable to other followers of Christ, hearing multiple voices and multiple perspectives on Jesus, not just one or not just our own. I mean, it's doing the work of of true long-term love that we're called to, not just uh, the kind of ooh-ah kind of feelings of he loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. So so that's really helpful. How is that different? You talk in the book a lot about encounters, almost mystical encounters with Jesus that are necessary. How is that? Where does that fit with what you had said about people falling in love with Jesus? So if we're going to help disciples become disciples who are not falling out of love necessarily. Uh, you talk in the book about the, the way that we have fed the brain with knowledge about Jesus, but we need a mystical encounter. So where does that fit? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I don't want to dismiss the knowledge about Jesus. I, I, what I would say, it was bouncing out of what I just said earlier was, Lots of people are raised in the church and they know stuff about Jesus. It mm-hmm. kind of swirls around them. But I'm actually astonished by how little people actually know about Jesus, John. Like, I mean, people have been in church, you know, all of their lives. Um, and I know that they know that he's the son of God and he died for their sins. And, you know, you know big doctrinal kind of ideas about that. But when you actually ask them, well, why would he have said that to that person or what was he doing in that miracle there and why was that particularly important to the people that observed it? And hold on, well, could you, why did he say this if earlier he said that? You know, these kinds of things um, people are just oblivious to. And so I don't want to discount the knowing stuff about Jesus. Uh, I, I teach a, a, a unit at the, at the seminary where I teach uh, called um, Jesus and the Gospels. and um, and these are people who are, you know, doing an MDiv or a BTH or uh, a program like that, you know, ostensibly uh, feeling that God has called them to come some kind of ministry role. They're really committed people. They love Jesus. 
And every year I teach it, there are people saying, I had no idea about this. Like, why did no one tell me about this? Like, how, mm-hmm. how, can we, how can we don't talk about this all the time in our churches? Like, you know, not just a sermon here or there, but why are we not just like, like drenched or marinated in all of this stuff in our churches? So I would say that there is actually a lack of knowledge about, um, about Jesus. Uh, as I said, the big picture Jesus, but a lack of the detailed understanding of who he is and what he said and why he said it and what yeah. the kingdom of God <laughs> is like and what it looks like for him to be king. So there's there's that. But then on the other hand, I don't want to give the impression, as you, as you point out, John, that it's all just about how much I know and I've learned about Jesus. I think we all might have met people in our lives who are actually quite knowledgeable about Jesus but have no heart for Jesus. And so I would also say, as we say in the book, that there is is an encounter with Christ which kind of not just increases our knowledge but shapes our imagination. We... I know that it's kind of tweed to talk about, you know, what would Jesus do, but the kind of idea that we begin to see the world through the Gospels, through the lens Mm -hmm. of Christ, it shapes our imagination. We begin to make sense of our world about politics and economics and, and, and community and society and culture and art and music and life and relationships and family through this kind of Jesus lens. So our imaginations get reshaped over a long period of time by being immersed in, in, in the study of Jesus. But then thirdly, I'd also say we can't discount the fact that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, enters into us and, and shapes us. And that's the kind of mystical work of an existential encounter with Jesus. It's, it's not falling in love with Jesus like oh, golly, gosh, I've lost my head. I've just fallen for you. Right, right, right. It's the work of knowing he is present. It's also some of my most mystical encounters with Jesus have been encounters of rebuke and correction of the Holy Spirit beautifully and gently and kindly directing me away from something or shutting something down in my life Mm -hmm. or reshaping my thinking in some way. And I don't think we're up for that work solely on our own. We can't just think or imagine our way into that. That's often the kind of the 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 the, the deep yearnings and the deep promptings of the Holy Spirit in our life. So I think it's all of those things. And then maybe I'd also add fourthly, there is the contribution of the faith community, the Jesus community ought to have a say in all of that. I mean, I ought to submit myself to other people as I commit myself to them as well, that, that no one perspective, certainly not mine, but likewise, not only my pastor's perspective or the the pastor's perspectives, but the multiple perspectives of the faith community who are doing life together and journeying in Christ together uh, are hearing from each other. And I think that that's another factor. This is so, uh, John, I know you're chewing on the question. (laughs) but you're good. This is so, it's just it's so simple in like so many ways. It's so simple, but just the framework that you put on this concept of like falling in love with Jesus versus doing the like work of love with Jesus gives so much um, color commentary to me as I listen to you talk about phrases I've heard my entire life. I mean, so many of the things you're saying are phrases I've heard my entire life, but have, um, 
having the real life experience of walking in a committed marriage that is like a life sentence if you don't do it well, <laughs> or it's like beautiful discipleship, but I, it's such a silly thing. But as you're talking, I'm like, oh yeah, my imagination has been woken up by my spouse who I married into baseball, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> And yet my love of Jason and his love of baseball has woken up my imagination to the beauty of a sport that up until this moment, and that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but he has altered the way that I see the world. I now see baseball analogies everywhere. I hear baseball stories like it's a simple thing, but when you've done the hard work of love to ask those questions that you were describing about, like, why would he have said that? Like it's, this is simple work that we have muscles for, that we have practice in doing, or even the way that you're talking about how our relationships shape us in our community contexts, that we listen to each other in a way that is not to affirm or, or um, deny, but is like, again, asking the question, how are they seeing Jesus? How does that line up? It's, it's just such a simple thing you're describing. Um, but sometimes we need those handles or those levers or those like somebody to break up, especially for those of us that were raised in the church. And these phrases all have sort of a autopilot to them. It's I've, I've just been very grateful for that. It's simple analogy of falling in love versus doing the hard work of love. It brings. It's, it's super helpful, but it's also part of the problem too, because because these communities that teach us Jesus are, are themselves maybe echo chambers. So the conservative communities are echoing conservative Jesus ideologically. The progressive Christian communities are echoing progressive Jesus ideologically. You know, you know what I'm trying to say. They do that. So like, which Jesus, how do we get at the Jesus that you're trying to describe in the book? And each of those sides would say, well, that Jesus is aligned with them or that Jesus is aligned with them. How do we break that? Break our echo chambers. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, and, and I'm not discounting it. I think it is a legitimate question. I do think that if we only operate in our own kind of tribe, if you like, um, then we are in something of an echo chamber. I would also say that I think our churches are less of an echo chamber than we often think they are. So we will say, well, there's a conservative church, like that's the conservative one over there, and the pastor is and the spokespeople and the website yeah. and, and like it's all clearly branded. But or likewise this progressive church over there or this mainline church or this, you name it. Um, but I don't know about you, John, but I've been in lots of churches and I start talking to people in churches and they are not all conservative just because they're in the conservative church or they're not all progressive just because they're in the progressive church. Um, in fact, my experience has been maybe because I, if I'm in, in, a, in another church, I'm kind of there as a guest and I'm just, just there to speak maybe. Right. Um, and maybe also because I don't know what it is about me, but people often say to me, oh, I don't know why I'm telling you this. I haven't told anyone this before. Or they often say, I don't know why I'm I'm swearing as much now that I'm talking as you. I don't normally swear this <laughs> You bring much. out the swearing in people. I do. I say, like, oh, yeah, that could be a badge of honor. Say, it's the, the money, mustache. Go on, keep it. But the thing is like that, that people will often tell me stuff. And, and, and it's like, 
dude, what are you doing in this church? And they're like, well, there are a lot of us in this church that think this way, but they're silent. They're, they're under the radar. And again, this might contribute a lot to the kind of um, uh, you know, deconstruction conversations, kind of like, well, I'm just meant to be mute about this because I'm in the wrong club here. And so I remain silent and either I just silently stick with my kind of my, my unspoken kind of range or questions or I, or I leave. But my view would be that the more voices we call out in our congregations, the, the, the richer the conversation is going to be, not to, notwithstanding the fact that it may well be within a range of thought. I acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. But I think that there is more diversity often present within our congregations that a lot of clergy often, you know, like to like to think. Um, it's part of this whole conversation about whether we as a church should become, you know, affirming of LGBTQ or whether we should become, you know, outspoken about this issue or that issue, as though a congregation speaks with one voice about all things. And it's not true. It's naive to imagine that. But I think that that's a good thing. I think there's some richness and beauty. There are insights in each of our congregations that we don't get to hear. I mean, uh, particularly, you know, if we're going to have a a church which is uh, dominated by white men, for example, this is an obvious one. How many, how many perspectives are there in that congregation that are not being heard from? But, right. I mean, I have a sister with an intellectual disability. No one's going to ask her to speak or lead a service or, or become a spokesperson for anything. But does she have a contribution? Are there things that we might learn from her about what it means to follow Jesus? I think that there are, but we don't hear those things. And I think that the more voices we can bring to that conversation, the greater or richer the, the perspectives might be. Are you game, I realize this is a, I'm asking you to dare greatly, but are you game to get a little feisty or a little just brutally honest from the world as you see it? Like we are, the power dynamics inside, at least the North America church, I don't want to speak for the globe, but you cover a good, like the power dynamics inside of our churches, whether you're talking about a, a male dominated uh, culture, or you're talking about our echo chambers around race, or you're talking about the power dynamics inside of the modern church don't speak to Jesus's. What you just described is we're missing the diversity of thought because we are bunched up the way that we're bunched up. We should just talk a little bit about Jesus and power and our current church models or leadership, lack of like yeah, leadership, like leadership, leadership models, maybe too. Well, I mean, you know, you see it, it, well, you see it in the Gospels as well. Do you know the story in John's Gospel where Jesus heals a man that's born blind? I mean, there are lots of times when Jesus heals people and it's all very quiet, like, shh, don't tell anybody about this. Like, let's keep this on the lowdown. But then there are other miracles where they're staged in order to be pretty flashy and showy, like, you know, the raising of Lazarus, like he kind of really builds up to that one. And that's a real kind of poke in the side of the, of the religious leadership. But the, the, the healing of the, the blind man 
in John chapter 9 is like exactly like that because he doesn't just heal him. Do you remember this story how he spits in the dirt and makes mud yeah. and then makes the poor yeah. guy walk all the way into town? And It's staged. The whole idea is that like people be watching this like, what the heck? And then they follow him and then Perf- the crowd performance art. And then, yeah, and it's like, <laughs> uh, and then they get to the pool and washes their way. It's like this, it, it builds to a crescendo. He's healed. Everyone is talking about it. And now the Pharisees, can't you know deny it like it was seen by so many people it gathered such a crowd and um uh and so they can't say he wasn't healed and so they start to to probe the question about where does Jesus power come from and what you find happens then is just the most obscene example of of toxic religious bullying that you can imagine. I mean, they bring a man who's been born blind. He has no education. He's never had a job. He has very limited kind of social capacity, you would imagine. They bring him before a tribunal where he's expected to answer questions, theological questions. I mean, it is it is the worst case. I mean, and I live in academia, so I know what kind of kind of, um, you know, theological bullying can look like. It's like uh, the worst case of of toxic religious bullying. It's like the way we put women on trial when they're accusing their their rapists of a crime. Um, It's foul. It's disgusting. It's infuriating. And then when he can't answer them, I mean, we often laugh at his answers when they, when, you know, when they ask him, you know, so many questions. He's like, "Oh, are you want him to follow him too?" Like, I don't think he's being a smartass. I think he's like a child. I mean, he's just answering in the most naively honest kind of way. And when they don't get a right answer out of him, they're like, oh, "Piss off!" Like, bring your parents in here. I <laughs> humiliate him. Like, there's nothing worse in Middle Eastern culture. Like, you're not a man. You can't speak for yourself. Get your parents in here. And they're so terrified, they just play dumb. They just say, oh, we don't know where the power came from. Like, I mean, it breaks my heart, that, that whole chapter. It's really brutal. Mm-hmm. It's foul. It's disgusting. Religious control. And the chapter ends when Jesus enters enters back into the story and he, he talks in his usual way about how the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And the Pharisees are like, wait a second, are you talking about us? And Jesus hits them so hard. He's like, um, if you could, if you were blind, I could allow your behavior, but because you claim to see, your sin remains. It's like, Mm. whoa. I mean, you can see Jesus is infuriated at this disgraceful display of religious leadership. And then we go to chapter 10 and Jesus talks about being the good shepherd. And, of course, we always divorce that from what happened before and it's all like, you know, beautiful Jesus with his blonde hair and a little lamb in his arms and Jesus is the good shepherd. But Jesus is saying that I am the good shepherd, the inference being because you are bad shepherds. shepherds. Like what you have done is wrong. And then he, he mixes his metaphors all over the place in John chapter 10. But effectively the story that emerges is it's like you have put the people into this pen you've penned them in like sheep and i've had shepherds tell me that the last thing sheep want want is at the end of the day to be herded into a pen he said he's actually seen sheep almost break their necks trying to get out of a pen they're only put in there at night so that they can be safe from thieves or from wolves and so 
it's not the place they're meant to be. It's just for their own safety, just for the evening. And as soon as the sun bursts over the horizon, the shepherd frees them and takes them to green pastures. So this idea is that you, toxic religious leaders, have hemmed them in. You have boxed people in. They're terrified of you. They can't answer questions that you ask them because they're afraid you'll excommunicate them or humiliate them or crush them or destroy them. It's like, you are such bad shepherds, but I am the good shepherd and I've come to lead people to freedom. To Of course, in that passage you've got, Jesus saying, those whom the sun sets free are free indeed. The freedom is the true freedom to be everything that God intended us to be. Sorry if this story is going on too long, but I really love it. Um, but in all of that, we have this, this image of what happens when leadership becomes so toxic, it's concerned about its own status and maintaining allegiance to its to fealty to themselves. It's fear-based, it alienates the outsider, it it doesn't allow questions. It shuts down any sense of honesty or truthfulness. Um, it's about maintaining a particular order. It terrifies people. And Jesus clearly indicates to us, I came to set people freed from this thing. And I can't tell that story without ending the way it ends when he says, and guess what? I'm going to call sheep from other pens who are going to come and join this, the lost sheep of Israel. And he sketches this beautiful image of this kind of multi-ethnic, multinational flock of people right. hearing his voice and following him. And the only thing the Pharisees can say is, he's mad, he's insane. I mean, it's so, so pathetic. There's no response to this. I just think that this is such a story for our own time. I just feel as though what we're finding and what's happening in our churches across the world is uh, leaders who have been part of systems which have actually been about maintaining hierarchies and control and shutting down questions, creating a fear-based form of religion, a toxic religion, in effect, uh, are all being outed. They're being uncovered. It's a terrible period of time that we're going through. It's shameful that we've had to go through it, but it feels to me as though there has been like a great Band-Aid ripped off a terrible wound. It's like there's been an unveiling of this kind of uh, toxic uh, leadership, and it's shameful. It happened, you know, long ago now in uh, in churches where uh, the, the kind of endemic child sexual assault had been occurring uh, by by priests and other clergy. It's like rip that Band-Aid off. And it's like it's disgusting. It was shameful. It was horrible. Again, that's toxic religion. That's about control. It's about penning people in, making them fearful and superstitious and silent. And now we're seeing a more overtly Protestant or evangelical version of that with leaders, maybe not so much around child sexual assault, but about um, about the classics, money, sex, and power, aren't we? And so uh, we're going through that same experience. It's horrible. I hate it. And I'm bracing myself for the next famous leader that's going to be outed. But I, it feels as though 
we have to go through this if we're going to be led out of the pen and out into freedom as Christ intended us to have, to hear his voice in the midst of all of this and to trust and to hope that there are people at least still open to the possibility that Jesus is king, that he does love us, that he has established this kind of reign and rule which is, is unfurling, a, a, a world of justice and peace and reconciliation and hope and and healing and community and joy and the presence of God, and he's calling us to that, and that in the midst of this we, we might be being renewed and, and purified. It's... It's the best yes. we can make of it. It's like, um, I mean, I, I think we're in a reformation like reforming. I think in the introduction of the printing press created a change in values, created a change in culture, which created the reformation. The introduction of social media, the smartphone, the internet is shifting the deck on our cultural values as well. It's flattening everything. It's good. Uh, and it feels like though, in these days that that's all there is. I think we have to remind ourselves that there's still people and there's still churches, many of them on this, in this conversation today who are doing it right. But what do we do when these things happen? And we want to, we want to say, what can I do? What can we do to make sure that we're not participating in this ugliness? What do you, what do you, how would you coach us? as pastors and leaders in these days to navigate through this without getting sunk by it, at least emotionally. Yeah. Well, I would, I would say, go. <laughs> this might be a bit obvious, but I'd say go back to what Jesus teaches us about what it looks like to be in his kingdom. I mean, what that's all Jesus is concerned about is, is helping people to see him as as the promised one, as the king. That's what all the miracles are pointing to. It's what the parables indicate. It's what so much of his ethical teaching is about. I mean, his whole birth narrative, is that all about? It's like flashing lights. This is the king. This is the king. It's what his death and resurrection is like. And so, in effect, so much of what Jesus is concerned about is that we would just see what it looks like, not that he's the king, but what kind of kingdom or what kind of reign is it that he's establishing. And when you look at the reign that he's establishing, it, it is a, a reign which is uh, completely and totally about finding reconciliation, uh, um, justice, the establishment of, of true and genuine justice, joy, uh, peace making, which is, I guess, connected to reconciliation, healing, the presence of God. And we have to ask ourselves again and again, what does it look like for us to live like those people? What does it look like for us as our little faith community to be people who are committed to justice, reconciliation, peace, joy? What does it mean for us to live into that? And I would say that collectively that conversation is also, what does it mean for us to be those kinds of people who demand allegiance to Christ and his kingdom, but are also able to offer grace and mercy and kindness and to, to not be part of the 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 kind of vicious, uh, um, cruel, polarised world that we find ourselves in, but actually be a community which, which in a kind of unruffled Jesus-like way, continues to press forward into the beautiful things to which he has called us. And um, I do think that there are times when we ought to be strident in our language in condemning 
the misbehaviour of leaders, and particularly those who are unrepentant or uh, who are not kind of willing to to bend their knee to the things that Christ has called us to. So I, I, I'm not suggesting that we ought to be all sweetness and light to everybody, but we also ought to be a community in which the fallen are able to repent and find new life and a new way forward. Um, that's the kind of extraordinarily radical, uh, transforming thing that Christ calls us to. In this season, I've spent so much time just letting my mind wander on the tools of Jesus or our Christian faith or the tools of the world. And the things that got us into this moment will not be the things that get us out of this moment. So when you're talking about like, how do we, you know, fight a good fight and not fight in the way that is making this worse. So, and I think that that is modeled by Jesus. There is, Jesus is not just the kumbaya. <laughs> like he, and again, I think probably because of my, uh, like I, I spent a lot of time right now working on naming things internally for myself as a woman inside of an industry that is uncovering unsafety for women. I'm spending a lot of time thinking about the names of things that are not okay and try to find the courage. And I, I appreciate the fact that you're talking about like, we need to talk about them and we need to be able to call them out, but we need to be working inside of the power that is Jesus's, which is love, that we are not naming these things to wound each other. We need to be naming these things in order to begin healing and not at the expense of the person that we might be saying, hey, I am experiencing X on the other side of you. I'm not doing it because I love the greater community and you're just the scapegoat in this moment on our way to a healthier church. I have to love you and I am using love in order to compel my courage to have this difficult conversation to name the things that need to be named. Like nobody in Jesus's system gets sacrificed on the altar of the greater good or the like there is enough space for everybody wounded wounder like but we have to name the things like they have to come out into yeah, the light. And I think we also need to give space for where people are naming things as you say and they're doing so out of woundedness and anger and we have to be big enough to be able to manage that. I mean, what you've just said about yourself as a mature woman naming things and doing so with grace is one thing, but there are also lots of younger women who will, oh, not just younger, lots of other women who might name those things in ways which are strident and out of fury and um, yeah. and it's 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 understandable. And to be a community which is gracious enough to hold that space because we're all on a journey toward becoming more like Jesus. And so, yeah, I would say um, it, it is about being able to name things and being big enough to cope with people when they name them in ways that we might not feel comfortable about. That is such a good word, because equally I am having a ton of conversations with women right now who are hugely mortified by their level of anger and are afraid to speak up because their thoughts would be discredited because of the anger in the space. And having one of the things that I'm praying comes out of this is a better theology of anger. 
Yeah. I'm hoping somebody so too, is it? Because I can be angry and strident and outspoken, and people may not like it, but it's not like it's considered illegitimate for me to do that. But women, it is, and it's—I mean—it's unfair. There's an unfair advantage that certain of us have over others, and again, that's just so not what the Jesus E community is about. Um, it's about us all being able to be as open as and honest as we possibly can. And for us, to, those of us who are more mature, to recognise that, you know, anger is part of a journey toward kind of uh, uh, wholeness and maturity, and in some cases, a really important and essential one. So uh, can, can I ask a question for, and your you and Alan, as you guys are consulting and teaching, and practicing when you develop leaders uh there's something that's getting is slipping into our understanding of what a leader is that is creating it's sin sin nature but it's also creating uh, uh you know a degree that's sending us by degrees away from jesus so if you could say one thing to a bunch of pastors and leaders who are developing others in the faith and developing leaders in their churches what do we need to make sure in this moment we're paying attention to so that we are not missing Jesus by accident and by degrees over time? I'd say that we need to commit ourselves to a lifelong devotion to accountability and, and supervision um, as leaders. Uh, I think, I mean, there's no silver bullet in all of this, but I would say that that's one of the things that so many of the leaders that we've seen who have kind of fallen spectacularly seems to be absent. They're like a genuine humility that submits to uh, accountability and to deep pastoral supervision. I mean, to naming the shit in our lives and to to exploring the kind of the negative and and corrosive patterns that that have shaped our lives, all of our lives. I mean. Um, you know, you can do lots of Bible studies and that's going to help. But unless you kind of really do work on what it is that kind of shapes your imagination and the eyes through which you see or read the stuff that you're reading, then it's it's only going to get you so far. So, um, and that just takes courage. That's just really, that can be really hard and painful and some periods shameful work to have to submit to. But you know, when you encounter real leaders who have been able to humbly submit themselves in such a way and been open to going on the deep journey of uncovering what made them who they are and what it means for them to divest themselves of certain things and take on other things to become more like Jesus, uh, there's a, just a kind of a richness and a beauty about people like that that just, just, takes your breath away. We're going to transition in just a couple of minutes to Q&A with our live audience. And um, while the chat space is doing its thing with those questions, we're going to invite Paul in here, who is our chat host for the live audience. And he will be pulling questions out of that. While he's queuing up the questions that are coming, Mike, is there anything we're not asking you about? Because it's about ready to be wild card. Like, we don't know what's coming out of that chat. So the conversation will go where our audience takes us. Is there anything we haven't thought to ask you that you're like, we should be talking about this? 
Um, I don't know if this, I don't know. I mean, one thing that does come to mind is I'd want to encourage people to believe that Jesus will still be present for and open to and engage with us, even in our own misapprehensions and our own limitations. So I always draw lots of sort of encouragement from the, the story of the, the healing of the bleeding woman who reaches out and touches his, his garment. I mean, she had fallen for a, like a, she'd fallen for a lie that said that if you touch the the hem of the garment of a holy man, a Pharisee or a, a teacher, that, you know, you will be healed. And even the Pharisees knew that was bullshit. Like they, but they would still tie long tassels onto their clothing to kind of tempt the poor ignorant people into thinking that they did have some kind of healing. Then we're back to that toxic religious kind of thing again. Jesus even berates them. And when I first read this, like Jesus having, having a go at these guys about the length of their tassels, I'm like, well, is this a big issue? But it's a big issue because what you're doing is you're it's pretense. It's 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 you're lying without actually speaking the lie. And this poor ignorant woman believing the lie touches the hem of Jesus' garment and he's still here. Like she steals a miracle from him based on an untruth. I mean, that's just the most supreme example of grace, don't you think? And then, but that's not good enough for Jesus. Jesus then has to stop and say, who did that? Everyone denies it. And then it's like he brings this woman out of the shadows into the assembly of men, and she says, "It." he says, it was your faith that made you well. He, he affirms her in her misapprehension. You had enough faith to believe that I could heal you, and that did the trick. And I, I think to myself, there is so much that we get wrong and there are so many ways that we're kind of blinded to all that Christ is calling us to be and to do. But even in our misapprehensions and our misunderstandings and our limitations, reaching out to and having faith in and trusting Jesus as king, Man, that covers a multitude of sins. And I, I would want to encourage us to believe that Christ is very present, even in the midst of, of all the things we're getting wrong at the moment. Amen. Love that. Thank you for that. So, Paul, we're ready for whatever it is you're bringing out of that chat. Okay, I have mined the chat. And it is just full of a bunch of very wise people. But here's our first question that I'm going to throw out to Mike. Uh, the, the question is this, as a pastor or church leader, how can I convince my people to go to marriage counseling for their relationship with Jesus? Ooh, witty. I reckon every Sunday ought to be marriage counseling for our relationship with Jesus. Oh. Hmm. And if it's not doing that, then you've got something wrong. Like it's not working, like change it. Yeah. I mean, you know, so many pastors tell me that their role, their primary role is as a teacher. And I say to them, well, I'm a teacher. I'm a professor. I have to show at the end of every semester that my students have learned something. I have all sorts of levels of accountability about that. I have to actually be able to demonstrate my students know things now they didn't know at the beginning of this semester. So how do you as a pastor determine that your congregation has learned something? And the answer is like, I don't. Like, they don't. Like, there's just, if you're a teacher, 
if what you're wanting to do is to expand people's understandings of Jesus, how do you measure that? Like if you're a pastor and you're wanting to call people into doing the work of love in their relationship with Jesus, how do you measure that? And at the moment, like just doing Sundays as we've always done them, it doesn't appear to be doing the trick. I mean, there's good things that happen there, but what would it look like if we actually took seriously that this is not marriage counselling? I understand the question was a little tongue in cheek, but what does it look like for this gathering, at least the one time in the week where we as a community come together for us to actually do the work of learning, to, to, to be past the falling in love stage and in the, the long-term, lifelong union with Christ stage, and then shape things accordingly. That reminds me that like we just need different metrics, right? Like that needs to move from sort of budgets and butts in the seat to something more like how is this transforming your life? I know in Australia, I heard that that one of the theories of education they're trying to implement is like competency-based education that's a lot different than just did you know the facts? You have to demonstrate how you know them. So I love that. Uh, our next question comes to us from, hopefully I'm pronouncing this person's name right, Aid or Ade? Aid. And um, they ask, is there a way we can effectively hold one another to account for the values we are seeking to live into? Is there a way for us to do that? Effectively. Effective way that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't turn into something gross. I think a lot of us reject accountability or because we've been squashed by it or shamed by it. It's been toxic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would say that that's not accountability in, in that case. But, yeah, I, I take your point. I mean, I think churches need to kind of establish a system for accountability. And at the moment, well, obviously that doesn't happen on a Sunday morning. But the only other thing we seem to have is kind of, a, you know, cell groups or home groups or Bible study groups and the like. And, again, that's often been around sort of pastoral care and checking in on each other and study of the Bible. But what would it look like if we actually developed a, a whole process of meaningful but non-shameful accountability relationships, supervision and support and encouragement? Not everyone's going to be up for that. I appreciate that. We're not like it's not, we're not forcing people into uh, processes that they're not open to or ready to, but to actually show the benefit and the beauty and the richness of that. I, I'm I'm actually on Thursday night. I'm going to a a sex and love addiction support group with a friend of mine who, I mean, is just stuck in really unhelpful ways, which is really affecting his marriage. And the level of honesty and openness and, and genuine desire to change and grow is not a Christian support group, but I mean, it's a 12 step kind of group in effect. And, um, it's inspiring and it's beautiful. And I just feel as it's un, it's not shameful by any means. It's, it's genuinely calling people to be better. Um, and I think to myself, why is the church not more open to this level of really truthful, genuine, broken openness? That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. I, I've also encountered a, a more of a richness in recovery groups than, than sometime in most churches. I have another question. This one comes from Nelson. And I'm going to just read a bit of his comment and then hit you with a question. He said, along with Angie's point about anger, we need a better theology of the place of emotions and discipleship. I don't hear you, Michael, saying that we ought to disregard them. 
Um, but we ought to take great care in understanding how we are emotional beings and not just thinking things. And that is a beautiful, necessary part of being made in the image of God. So here's the question. What is a theology of emotion? Well, firstly, that is a really beautiful uh, comment, and he's absolutely right, Nelson. Thank you. What is a theology of emotion? Um, well, that's a complex question, and I think partly it's about it's got to involve us having a richer language about emotion. Uh, and I think in particular for men, I don't like to get gender stereotypical on too many things, but I think that I could say this stereotypically. A lot of men have very limited language, emotional language. We can talk about being happy and sad. We can talk about a few good and bad emotions, um, but we don't have a very rich language to describe a myriad forms of emotional responses to things, um, both hot and cold emotions. Uh, and so I feel like we need a bigger colour palette, a bigger kind of you know colour chart to describe how we're feeling. We need a better kind of way to speak about what we what what our emotional response to certain things happens to be. I definitely think a theology of emotions involves the discovery of richer language of emotion. Um, and, and again, as I don't want to be too stereotypical, but I feel as though that's less of an issue with women. I don't know if Ange wants to comment on that or not. Uh, no, there is a th there is definitely better vocabulary for that, but uh, uh, equal struggle to accept that this is okay and right. So that's the thing I see us having in common is the judgment of emotions and the not knowing what role they play. So there may be a broader spectrum of vocabulary for women, but we could use a theology of emotions. Could, I don't know if you're working on your next book. Mike, Mike Frost, Theology of Emotions. Oh, missional, missional Emotions. There yeah, you go. But I mean, I think uh, I think Nelson's point is a really important one because I, as I'm thinking about it, I think, you know, it also plays into our theology of sin and emotion. It turns out our theology of grace and emotion. I mean, it's so um, kind of multi-layered. It's such a complex thing. It's uh, But definitely there needs to be more work done on it. I know uh, if I was writing a book on the theology of emotion, I'm tempted to just quote Karl Barth and say, Jesus is the answer. What's the question? So I would start with Jesus and work our way Well, out. talk about an emotional being. I mean, just, just do a survey of the emotions of Jesus yes. through the, through the gospels. I mean, is so, so uh, layered. So we have, we have time for one more question, one more. but a brief, a brief one, Paul. Well, I hope this is brief, but here's, here's the question. This one's from Brian Hill. And he says, how do we understand and teach the kingdom of God so that it impacts how we view the church and who we are as Christ followers? <laughs> 30 seconds, no problem. Just, just 30 seconds. That's all you have. <laughs> well, I don't know if this answers that question, but I, just, I think that there are lots of people in our churches who don't really know what the kingdom of God is. And I, and I think mm, part good. of that is because particularly the evangelical church, I know that that is a contested term, but in the kind of pietistic or the kind of, um, the, the kind of evangelistically Protestant movements, 
um, the word gospel has dominated over kingdom. So if I was to go to your church and ask, you know, a bunch of people, what is the gospel? My guess is that much a lot of them would, would, would be able to answer something about Jesus dying for my sins and the like. You know, it's not a strange term. There's a sense in which they would be able to have a, have a go at answering that. But if I ask them, what is the kingdom of God or the reign of God or the rule of God or whatever term might be you know, appropriate in, the, in that particular church, I think there's lots of crickets happen at that point. Mm-hmm. I just think there's like, oh, there's just no language for it. Um, we got sucked into believing that the kingdom of God was all about Jesus dying for our sins and us repenting so we can go to heaven when we die. Now, all of that is, they're all beautiful ideas, actually, when you couch them in the broader understanding of what the reign of God is about. But we have, I mean, we just talked about a, a limited a range of, of vocabulary when it comes to emotions. We haven't trained people to be able to talk about the kingdom of God. Like, and so then we ask people, go out and share this stuff with other people. And all they've got is you're a sinner and Jesus died for your sins. And they know that doesn't work and they know their friends yep. don't want to hear that. So they're just like silent. They just say nothing. But what would it look like if we actually taught them to explain what Jesus told us the kingdom of God was like? Mm-hmm. What it looks like for us to live like that. I mean, that would be a whole different set of conversations. So I would say if the question is how uh, how can we better you know, have a – train people in the, in the kingdom of God, teach them what the kingdom of God is for a start. Like let, let's learn a vocabulary and language and metaphors and ideas uh, and, and examples of how we live into that. Um, and let's trade the kingdom for the gospel. I mean, it's the good news of the kingdom. So the gospel just describes that it's good news. The kingdom is the news. So yeah. let's get back to that. That's so good, Mike. It, you're, you're, you're like honing in so many beautiful threads there that the gospel is bigger than like a soteriology, how to get saved. And I know like speaking as a millennial and a pastor, I know when I talk to people my age and younger, that lights them up because like they don't, as much as the message of where do I go when I die is an important question. It's not the question they're asking. They're saying like, how am I going to see economic justice? Should I even have a kid? Should I even like, what about the environment? All these questions, which the gospel speaks to, but a soteriology and even worse, a soteriology captured by Gnosticism of escaping the world has really done a number on the church. And, on, and also on, not, just, not just those questions, it's also should I as a white male be silent right now? Uh, in what ways does the kingdom actually call me to repent of yes. what I've accrued, what I own, what I have, my Amen. personal power and privilege? And yeah, all of those things, Paul, yeah. Mike, we just want to say thank you to you for this time, for investing in, in Jesus Collective, in our network. Uh, thank you for being out there and providing imagination and resources for this Jesus-centered movement that's that's unfolding around the world that we're excited about. And uh, we're just, we're grateful you gave us your time today. Very oh, much. I'm grateful for Jesus Collective. I think you guys are doing great stuff. I really do. So yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. If you, you haven't bet. done it, pick up Re-Jesus. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Read it. We're yeah. going to be promoting a book right now. that's right it's it's uh it's it is worth the read for sure very much um if you are a a podcast listener in jesus collective world go back and listen to the last three episodes they are really good 
they're, they're full of dynamic conversations about leadership in a Jesus centered way and practicing being a Jesus centered church. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out JesusCollective.com where you can hear stories, find info about upcoming events and workshops, maybe even explore getting involved through partnership as a church or an individual leader. Listening is such an important part of our journey as an organization. So please feel free to reach out to us with your ideas and your feedback. Drop us a message on social media or you can email us at connect at JesusCollective.com. Here's to keeping Jesus at the center.